Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, please. Uh, I'm preaching before the Lord's Supper today because I want to preach about the Lord's Supper and I want to just to encourage you to think about the Lord and what he's done for us in a, in a uh, deeper way than we uh, always take time for. I, I went on another little trip this week to uh, visit some pastors and churches and uh, I got home into SeaTac Airport on Thursday evening at about 9.30. And as I got my phone out to call the people who, who live near the airport who were going to bring my car to me or take me to my car, I left it at their house, there was a little funny thing on the screen on my phone, and, and I tried to, like, swipe it away or, or get rid of it. And what I succeeded in doing was locking up my phone. Now... For those of you that don't have a smartphone, that means it's sitting there looking at you going, na 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 <laughs> And you push the buttons and you try every trick you know. And you see, because not only can I not call my friend, I don't know my friend's cellular phone number without the phone being open so I can see what's in there. Well, there's a pay phone at SeaTac, a couple of them. You can put your credit card in there. So I think, okay, and I look on there, it says dial 411 for information. I think, I hope they have a home phone and put my credit card in and push the buttons. No, it doesn't work that way. So I push the buttons and put the credit, and I fiddled with that thing. Finally, got a phone number, finally called, or no, I didn't, maybe there wasn't a phone number, I don't know. And then I thought, well, I've got the directory for my pastor, so I, I, I called the pastor, the local pastor. He didn't answer his home phone. He didn't answer his cell phone. So then I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to have to call Sue, and she's going to have to call these other people who know this lady who they can get the phone number. I spent $17 on the payphone. The credit card company called me up and said, are these legitimate charges? <laughs> They even blocked it the first time I tried to use it because they thought it was fraud. Had a great time at SeaTac on Thursday night. <laughs> Meanwhile, the clock's ticking and it's getting later and I got to drive for an hour and a half to get home. Oh my goodness. The stuff of life comes and goes, it ebbs and flows. And if our joy is dependent on the stuff of life, our joy is going to be transient. But if our joy is dependent on the real stuff of our real life, the stuff that we're here to celebrate today, then that joy transcends the stuff of life. Please follow as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The familiar verses to us starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. As, as we think about the Lord's Supper, there are some truths that are inherent in this passage and in the ritual itself that I hope will bring joy to you, and not just joy while you're sitting here, but joy as you meditate on them throughout your life. And the first joy is the joy of a memorial and not a sacrament. Look at verse 24. This is my body which is given for you. Do it in remembrance of me. The stated purpose of what we call the Lord's Supper or communion is to remember the Lord. It is not for us to become saved or born again. It's not for us to get salvation as the Roman Catholic Church would tell us. They would have us to believe that eating the bread and drinking the juice once it's been blessed by the priest is how the, the salvation is dispensed to us. The Lord never expressed or implied that eating this bread and drinking this juice was something you must do to receive the salvation he suffered to obtain for us. This great verse enunciates the truth, for by grace or by a gift you have been saved through faith, not through eating, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any one should boast. In the Lord's Supper you do not receive the body and blood of Christ thereby gaining salvation. You don't maintain your status in Christ by receiving these elements. You don't get more saved or more holy by taking the bread and the cup. What you get is an opportunity to say, Jesus, I remember you. Jesus, I thank you. Jesus, thank you for the salvation you purchased in that great time of suffering. In recent years, I've had uh, ongoing discussions uh, with uh, a member of the Roman Catholic Church who works at that uh, Scottish buffet where I like to have breakfast, <laughs> McDonald's. <laughs> this fellow's a little bit older than me, and he, he's usually cleaning in the room where I'm sitting eating my breakfast in the playroom, and... and uh, He'll, he'll come over, he's, he's, uh, he's uh, an, an immigrant to our country from a, a very Catholic country, and he'll come over and say, can I ask you a question? And uh, he does that every so often. What do you think happens to believers who die with sin? That's one of his questions he's asked me. What do you think happens to a believer who dies with sin? Well, I, I know the, their religious system, and I, 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 can, I can see what he's struggling with in his thought process. You see, in their system, the amount of sin that you've done stays with you, and when you die, you go into a place called purgatory, 
which is uh, uh, the bigger way to, to say the word purge or clean, and it's a time of suffering to clean up the sin that you've done so you're worthy to enter heaven. And in their system, of course, if, if you haven't done all of the prescribed things right up until the moment of your death, and there's a, there's a little system there called the last rites that you're supposed to have, if you haven't done all those, then you've got more sin and more time in purgatory. And it's my great privilege to just quote the scripture and say, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Why? Why is that possible? It's possible because this is not a sacrifice for sin. It is the remembrance of the sacrifice. The sacrifice was done one time, and we read about that in Hebrews. And every priest, he's talking about the Old Testament priest in particular, stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, talking about the, the sacrifice of animals in that Old Testament time. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified for by one offering he has perfected forever. The, the marvelous truth, the joyful truth that is ours is this. When Christ died on the cross, his sacrifice paid for all of our sin. And when we believe in Christ, sincerely from our heart, we, 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 we open ourselves completely to him. We become a child of God and our sin is forgiven and the life of Christ is put inside, and when God looks at us at any given moment in our life, what he sees is the blood of Christ covering us. That's why I am secure in my salvation. I'm not secure because I'm so good at holding on to the rope of faith. I'm not secure because I live perfectly moment to moment. God knows that I sin, and we're talking a minute about what I need to do about that, but God also knows that he has forgiven me completely and transformed me, and I am ready for heaven at any moment. I, there's no need for me to go and suffer for sin. Christ suffered for me. My suffering becomes superfluous. Christ gave the final sacrifice, and I want you to know something giving that sacrifice so we could be saved and secure on our way to heaven made Jesus happy. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. It made Christ happy to know that we can be saved. And it ought to make us happy to know that our salvation is final, it's complete, it's firm, it's secure. The Lord's Supper is not a means where we have to keep coming week after week to make sure we're ready. It's a way that we commemorate the fact that we are ready for heaven. We are a child of God. We are forgiven. 
we're here to remember what Jesus has already done, and that is a great, a great point, point of joy in our life. The second joy that's pictured in the Lord's Supper is the joy of a substitutionary suffering. Jesus died as our substitute. Look at verse 24 again. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, which is literally given for you. It's given for you. The word broken uh, was a variant that was added in some of the ancient Greek texts, and it made its way into some translations of the Bible. But we know that that is uh, not true. It's not the right rendering of the Scripture because the Apostle John noted that when the guards came to break the legs of those that were hanging on the cross to speed up their death, that Jesus was already dead, so they didn't need to break his legs. Instead, they, they pierced him with a sword to make sure that he was dead. And the Old Testament scripture says, not a bone of him shall be broken in Psalm 24. And, and then Psalm 22 talked about all of his bones being out of place or disjointed. But Christ wasn't broken for us, but he was given for us. The key idea here is for us. He didn't suffer for his own sin. He suffered for our sin. Isaiah, Isaiah 53 speaks about that when it says, He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Christ died for me so that I don't have to suffer. He suffered for me so that I don't have to suffer. God is not going to punish me for my sins. He punished Christ. Paul wrote about this joyful truth in Romans chapter 5. When we were still without strength, that without spiritual strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. He's saying, he's saying the only thing I can possibly imagine that if there was a really a good man, somebody might step in and take his place for some high reason. But he, he's basically thinking, I, I can't even imagine somebody doing that. But God demonstrates his own love toward us the depth of his love, the extent of his love, in that while we were still sinners, we were, we were not a righteous man, we were not a good man, we were sinners, we were bad people, Christ died for us. I'm going to share with you a little bit later about witnessing to, to somebody on the airplane, and one of the points this fellow kept bringing up was, what about the people who haven't had a chance to hear the, the truth of God? And I said, you know what? The reality is we all deserve to go to hell. And man, that was a shocker to him. You mean we're all born evil? I said, yes. We're all born in sin. I don't deserve to go to heaven. God has been so gracious to me while I was still a sinner. Christ died for me, much more having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 
For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled or brought together with God through the death of his son, looking forward, much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. What a marvelous truth. I am never going to experience God's punishment on sin because Christ was punished for me. When I think of the cross, as horrible as it is, it's a joy to me because I'm not going to suffer that. And in truth, I, I couldn't suffer that. I couldn't make it physically through that, much less spiritually what Christ went through. The truth of Christ dying for us, of him being punished for us, is a cold drink on a hot day. It's a warm blanket on a cold night. I'm sad that Christ needed to suffer, but I'm happy that I don't have to. This ought to drive us to humble gratefulness in worship. Uh, above all, this is, this is one of the great things that ought to be going through our heart and mind as we think about the body and blood of Christ. He was given for me. He suffered for me and I'm going to stop and think about that and just appreciate what he's done for me. The third joy that's pictured in the Lord's Supper is the joy of salvation purchased for us. Christ suffered for us and bought our salvation. Look at verse 25. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood the new agreement between God and man, the new covenant, do it in remembrance of me. Interestingly, in all of the references to the Lord's Supper, the word wine is never mentioned. And I'm not trying to argue for the fact that Jesus didn't drink fermented grape juice. I'm just saying that the point was not the content as much as it was the whole realm of things that Jesus suffered, the cup. Take this cup, and the reference to the cup has, has a broader impact in the scripture. And, and it, my mind goes to Matthew 26, when Jesus came with the disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went on a little further and fell on his face and he prayed and said, Oh, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup here represents all of the suffering and the death that Christ would go through. And that cup was realized in Matthew 27 we read this, and about the ninth hour of the day, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus purchased our salvation with his death. He refers to it here as the new covenant. 
the new covenant, Christ drank the cup of wrath that God poured out for him and purchased that new covenant. The new covenant was prophesied in the Old Testament and we're reminded about it in Hebrews chapter 8. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. The old covenant revolved around the law and the keeping of the law as, an, as the evidence of faith. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is what Jesus meant when he, in John 3 when he said, you must be born again. In the Old Testament, the hearing of the law and the keeping of the law was an external thing, and it was a, an external evidence of faith in their heart. But there was not a new birth or a transformation and God promised them, he said, someday I'm going to put my law in your mind, in your heart. There's going to be a whole internal change in your life. And when Christ came, he said, now what I'm about to do is going to bring you the new covenant. Now the new covenant has significant application to Israel, and we're not going to talk about that today. But this blessing of being newborn... Um, laps over to us. The specifics for, are for them, but the broad blessings are for us, the broad blessing of being born again. You see, in, in, the, in the crucifixion of Christ and in the remembrance of that in the Lord's Supper, I remember that I'm not only spared from suffering God's wrath, I also remember that I have received a new life in Christ. That new life is referenced by the juice, which pictures Christ's blood and his, and his death. And because we are born again, our life changes from the inside out. This fellow that I talked to, I was trying to describe that to him, the idea that we, we don't keep doing a bunch of things uh, to prove that we're a Christian, we are transformed from the inside and our life changes on the outside because of what's in us. Chief among those are the, the assurance and the certainty of heaven. I've sat by the bedside of many a dying believer, some of them awake and some of them not, some of them just about to experience heaven for the first time. And in those moments, I love to read from 2 Corinthians 5, we are well pleased to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And because our salvation has been purchased for us, that's a reality. It's a reality in our heart. It's a reality in our mind. It's a reality in our life. And we ought to remember the, the beauty and the blessing of that salvation purchased for us when we receive the Lord's Supper. There's one more joy that I want to share with you, and that's the joy of worthy participation. Look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, I know this is written in 
what we might call a negative tone. In other words, there's, some, there's a warning, something to be careful of. But that means it's possible to come to this table in a worthy manner. It's possible to come in an unworthy manner, and you should avoid that, but it's also possible to come in a worthy manner. That's not to be arrogant and say, oh, I'm such a great Christian and, and so on. No, because this all starts with our reflection on the cross and how Christ died for our sin, and that's what makes me worthy to begin with. But there is... There is worthiness to be received and then to be maintained. So what is it that makes us worthy in God's eyes? Well, first of all, as I just said, worthiness begins with faith in Christ. And that starts with uh, the command of salvation. 1 John 3, this is his command. This is his command that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now, he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he, God, in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he's given us. If you want to be worthy to receive this, the beginning is to say, have I believed in Christ as my Savior? See, I I can't judge your worthiness there are churches still today that was much more popular in days gone by who would have a, uh, I forget the exact name, but they would have a preparation meeting for the Lord's Supper. And in the preparation meeting, every single person in the church would be examined by the elders to see if they were worthy and prepared to, to take the Lord's Supper. The scripture says, let a man judge himself. This is between you and God, truly, and, and my job is to teach you what it means to be worthy. Your job is to talk to God and see if it's true in your life. But it starts right here. How can you possibly be worthy of, of receiving what represents the body and blood of Christ if you are rejecting the very commandment of God? Believing in Christ as Savior is a command and not a suggestion. It's not an alternative that you can choose or reject. If God says you must believe in Christ and you say no, but I'll honor him in my own way, you're like Cain in the Old Testament who brought the wrong sacrifice to the worship. And we know how that went for Cain. Do you want to honor Christ today? And believe in Christ. Maybe you've never come to that point in your life where you sat down and said, I believe in Christ. He was the Son of God. He took on a human nature. He shed his blood for me. He died, was buried, rose again. And I believe that. That's where my faith is. If you've never done that, you can do that today and be ready to receive the Lord's Supper. Jesus put it this way himself. If you love me, keep my commandments. You can't say, I'm coming here because I love the Lord, but I'm not going to believe in him. If you love the Lord, you keep his commandments. If my wife asks for her favorite white chocolate coconut raspberry rapture cake (laughs) for her birthday, and I say, 
well, I love you, honey, but I'm in the mood for chocolate, then who do I love? I love myself. Okay. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And the commandment is believe in Christ as your Savior. Your worthiness to eat this bread and drink this cup as an act of worship to God, as an act of worship and remembrance to Christ, starts when you believe in Christ as your Savior. And then secondly, worthiness is maintained. And I don't mean that your salvation is maintained. I mean that worthiness to eat this as an act of worship is maintained by self-examination. Look at verse 28. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Earlier in this book, part that we've already studied here a few months ago, we read this about the Corinthian Christians. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people. I had to speak to you as though you were still an unbeliever, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, nor are you, and even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal, that is a Christian living in the flesh or in sin. For where there is envy and strife and division among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? The Apostle Paul goes to great lengths to say, you haven't lost your salvation, but you're acting like somebody who is unsaved. The particular sin of the Corinthian believers was pride and arrogance that led to division. But the bigger issue was this. When you allow sin to remain in your life, you are not righteously spiritual. You are a Christian still, whom God will be chastising to get you to change, and you are living like an unbeliever. And so to be in sin, to be living like an unbeliever, when you come to the Lord's table, to honor the one who died to remove your sin is an insult and a bit of a spiritual irony, and it does not honor the work that he did. You see, the, mis- the great mistake of the religions of the world is that the physical act can somehow honor God while the heart is in a distant land. Those of us who call ourselves evangelical Christians and people of the book, we would never say that is acceptable, but we might act that way. And so when God says, let a man examine himself, we need to look in our hearts, and that's why we have the the elements are passed and we have the music playing as an opportunity for you just to meditate on your heart and to do some self-examination with hands open and say, God, is there a sin in my heart I have not confessed? Now, if you do that with an open heart and an open mind, God is able to go right there. See that one? Oh, I'm sorry, Lord. I confess that. I agree with you that that is wrong, and I thank you for your cleansing. If we confess, literally, if we agree with God that what we have done is wrong, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. When we are in sin, we are dirty. When we are confessed, we are clean. 
John MacArthur offered a stunning analogy. To trample our country's flag is not to dishonor a piece of cloth, but to dishonor the country it represents. To come unworthily to the communion does not simply dishonor the ceremony, it dishonors the one whose honor is celebrated. And that's why the author of Hebrews says this to us, wherefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiest or the very presence of God by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. We need to draw near to God and confess our sin and be clean and ready to worship him. Well, in, uh, in my travel arrangements before I left for this two-and-a-half-day trip this week, I, uh, I had planned for a couple of months to go to Boise for a certain meeting, and then there was a need to go to Spokane to uh, sit with a church that's uh, having a difficulty. And so I thought, hey, no problem. I'll fly to Spokane first, and then I'll fly to Boise, and then I'll come back home. I thought that once when we went to Europe, too. I looked on the map. I said, those places aren't far apart. Yeah, but you can't get there from here. Delta Airlines doesn't fly straight from Spokane to Boise very often. But they do fly to Salt Lake City regularly. So I went Seattle, Spokane. Spokane, Salt Lake, Salt Lake, Boise. Boise, Salt Lake, Salt Lake, Seattle. In two days. And on the way home, I got to the airport a little bit early, had a little extra time. I was planning to just kind of relax. I come up to the counter. I'm going to check my bag. And, and uh, the, the, the clerk gal uh, was kind of looking at my ticket going, wow, you're flying from Boise to Salt Lake and then to Seattle. I said, yeah, that's all that was available. And she said, well, you know, there's a direct flight a little bit later, and I, maybe I can get you on that. And I'm going, yes. And uh, she well, uh, Oh, she has to call her supervisor. Supervisor comes out. Nope, got to call my supervisor. No kidding. I had three people standing there. Nope, you can't do that. Oh, man. Break my heart. Me all excited. Let me down. Mm. What a waste. Flying, you know, it's an up and down to Salt Lake City, and then it's a little bit longer to Seattle. What a waste of time, or not. Um, I sit down in my seat. There's nobody beside me over here. There's one guy on the aisle right here, and there's nobody beside him. And, you know, we get to talk, and eh, what do you do? And I'm a pastor. And the guy says, what did he say? Oh. He said, I can't believe it. Something like that. And, and it was like, as he expressed himself, have you ever read the poem, The Hound of Heaven? 
Hound of Heaven is a story about God being after somebody and he never gives up. He's the Hound of Heaven. He, he, will, he will follow you wherever you go. And this guy basically said, the, the Lord has been stirring my heart. You know, that's, that's what he said, more or less. He was a Roman Catholic, a very serious Roman Catholic. And for, I don't know how long it took to get home because I didn't look at my watch. I think it's an hour and a half or so plus from, from one place to another. We talked the whole time. Now, my wife's been on some airplanes with me. I don't talk to her for an hour and a half on an airplane. And he just had question after question and, and, and really asking the skeptical questions, you know, well, yeah, but what about this? What about that? What about the other? And yet at the same time, there was this, this searching thing going on in his heart. He was raised Roman Catholic. He was devout, but he still doesn't know if he's a child of God. He doesn't know if his questions have kept him out of being a child of God. I did my best to answer his questions and direct him to God's word. I kept coming back to God's word, to God's word, to God's word. I finally gave him my, my New Testament and... and uh, he opened it and began reading. And I'm praying that, that he will come to the Lord. I'm going to, you know, I told him, I'm going to give you my business card. I'm not even going to ask you for your address or anything like that. And just told him about the miracle of God's word and how it'll change your life. And he gave me his business card before he left. So you know what that means when you tell a, when you tell a preacher where you live. <laughs> But I'm here to tell you, his soul is in turmoil, even though he has been exceedingly religious in his life. Because the religion doesn't get you there. It's faith in Christ who died for you. You've got to humble yourself and say, I can't save myself, you can and when you have, he makes you new. And then you need to humble yourself every day and every moment and say, I'm going to walk with you. But the great news is when you do, you have his joy. And it's our joy to come today and just remember the great salvation that we've been given. What a privilege is ours. Jesus suffered and died in the joy of bringing you and I the joy of salvation. And so it's our joy today to demonstrate our appreciation by worshiping him. Let's bow in prayer. Jesus, thank you. I thank you today that, that I do know that I'm a child of God. I do know I'm going to heaven I do have confidence in you and, and the word of God because of what you have done in my life. I, I don't have to live with questions and, and doubts and concerns and worries. I'm so glad for the joy of my salvation. I'm sorry it cost you so much. But I'm here to worship you and I pray that every person here is here to worship you in the sincerity of heart that you have asked us to do so. May you be honored as we receive your supper today. I pray in your name. Amen.